I'm turning today to Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians, chapter 3 and verse 3. Colossians 3, verse 3. These words, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And our title is The Child of God, Dead and Dying. And that is what we read here, as well in, as in Ephesians and in Paul's letter to the Romans. I read verses 3 again, and then verse 5. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 5. Mortify, therefore, put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Now there's undoubtedly a seeming contradiction. And yet uh, the contradiction, contradictory statements are so near to each other, it's obvious that they're intended and they're deliberate and they have uh, something to teach us. We are dead as Christians and yet we are to put to death our parts upon earth. Both things are true. And this brings us to the duty of mortification or putting to death of sin. Now in our last study we went straight to the positives in verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that tremendous term, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and so on. But we cannot avoid the negatives. And so we proceed now back to verses 3 and then 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon earth. And it's most important to deal with these. Here are uh, the most serious of sins that the Apostle Paul is going to list. But it's especially important to deal with them today as the Apostle presents this because uh, today society has changed. Today these uh, evils are paraded and applauded everywhere and the young grow up in an atmosphere of their constant acceptance and acknowledgement as reasonable and therefore it's very important we look at some of the terms that the apostle uses to warn against them. First of all, the contradiction. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Well, verse 3 deals, for ye are dead, deals with the truth about us as Christians. Through Christ, our spiritual status is that the old life is dead, that we are forgiven, that we are justified. We are not guilty before God. The spiritual status of the Christian is settled. There is no sin. There is nothing to face in the day of judgment. That's true. Ye are dead. You are saved. You are delivered from sin entirely. 
And yet it's equally true that we have to put to death, verse 5, mortify, because your actual condition does not entirely correspond to the spiritual truth about you. Forgiven, cleansed, accepted in Christ, bound for heaven, bound to be saved eternally, viewed by God as justified and righteous. Thus, that's the truth, but your actual condition doesn't correspond with that because the old nature is still there within you and the fallen tendencies of sin. You're still subject to the law of sin, something that's running around inside you. The old nature is not dominant, but it's there. It doesn't have dominion. You have a new nature, but it's still there. And its motions, its expressions expressions of sin, have to be put to death continually. So that's the picture that Paul presents to us. Yes, tremendous status, but the actual condition is that residual sin is still within us. So with that in mind, he proceeds to deal with uh, sexual impurity and sin. And this is so helpful to all people. I turn you back for a second to Romans and chapter 8 and verse 13 and this vital verse, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify, put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. If ye, through the Spirit, it's a most optimistic verse. And it tells us that if we put to death the motions of the old nature, the suggestions of the old nature, then we can do so by the Spirit. And we shall experience deliverance from those things and life and blessing. So I come back to Colossians 3.5. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Fornication. Now fornication, strictly speaking, is unlawful sexual intercourse. But the way the apostle uses the term here and elsewhere, it covers all sexual impurity in every form, in the mind as well as in action. Fornication, he uses the term, and you'll soon see it's the same here, to cover everything, so there's no need for us to go into detail. On account of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, and all sexual sin is punishable by God in the children of disobedience. Because we are dead. We are already declared righteous. How can we, in any shape or form, go back to those things which bring the wrath of God upon 
the children of disobedience. And then again, not only verse 6, but verse 7. The Colossians had committed all these sins. It was a very um, impure society in Colossae, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. And all kinds of fornication, all kinds of sexual sin was prominent in their society. But now they're saved. They've been converted. So they have to mortify any possible return of these things, put it to death. Now, here's where the apostle uh, uh, really gives us uh, teaching which is sobering and warning to all people. Moving from fornication, look at the terms which he uses, and I'll explain them. Uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. When you see those terms and you understand their meaning, you realize why the apostle calls these things your members which are upon the earth. Look at verse 5. Mortify, put to death therefore, your members which are upon the earth. What are your members? Well, it turns out your members are fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. He promptly lists them. What does Paul mean? Your members. Well, the point here is that your old personhood, your old personality, your whole being, your mind, your heart, your will, your departments of the person are involved in the old nature. And they're still affected by sin, by the old nature. Mortify, therefore, your members. These things are part of you. Your flesh, your old nature, they're an intrinsic part of you. And you're responsible for subduing them and handling them. So Paul calls them your members. By members he means uh, your bodily parts. They're almost like that. Of course they're not your arms, your legs, your trunk, your chest. But they're so close to you. They're so much part of you that he describes them as your members. As if they are bodily parts. Your old nature It may be subdued, it may no longer dominate, but it's still very close to you. Be warned, it's the language of warning. But look at the terms, uncleanness. Now the Greek term translated uncleanness invariably is used in connection with the mind. What is in mind by this word uncleanness is impure thoughts. And that's how it's often translated. Impure thoughts. 
That's a department of sexual impurity. Fornication comes first, the coverall term, and then look at the departments. Your thought life is affected. Uncleanness, impure thoughts. Inordinate affection, well that translates the Greek word for passion. Here's the affections. Inordinate affection, it's in our translation. Inordinate just means excessive. Affection for spiritual wrong. So that's the heart. The affections are involved. And then evil concupiscence. Well, they're not words we use today. Concupiscence is ardent sexual desire. But the Greek, which is translated in that way, simply means evil desires or longings. So you have a structure here which is very, uh, reminds you very much of mind, heart and will. Impure thoughts. Uncleanness. Inordinate affection. The affections, the heart, evil concupiscence, a longing or a will for, an inclination, it's your volitional, to do wrong. Now here's the warning, and particularly for the young. Any sexual impurity in the thought life, in the viewing of images, in any kind of temptation, affects these fundamental departments of your being. And you can't stop that. Your mind is affected. It's tainted. But your mind now is the palace of faith. It's your highest faculty. It's your reasoning faculty. And all your planning and weighing and discerning and thinking is done through the mind. Did you know that to entertain in the least degree sexual impurity, you've tainted your mind, the palace of faith, and the impurity comes in, and it's powerful, and it takes it over and ruins it. These things are, are warnings, uncleanness, inordinate affection. The affections, the heart, you begin to like things that are evil. I'll tell you how this can happen. You're sat in front of the television. And there's something which musically may charm you. But the imagery is all half-nakedness and undress and flaunting of sex. And you tap your foot to it and you like it. And you're teaching your affections to like and to excuse and to pass and to think re as reasonable things that are disgusting 
and offensive to God. You're virtually training and conditioning your affections. And you may inadvertently or casually watch that at the movies, at the films, or through the television regularly and often you've been polluted. Your affections have been tainted. They now, instead of being appalled at certain things, don't mind them and then grow to like them. That's that word. Inordinate affection. You accept and begin to like things that God calls you to find disgusting and utterly unacceptable that must be repudiated. The dangers that surround us today. And then evil concupiscence. Don't let the word put you off. Longing for the wrong. You begin to want these things and your will is already virtually conquered and you will then instruct the mind to plan to get it. But you've got mind, heart, will here and you can see how immorality can retrain and deeply corrupt and each injure each feature of your essential personality. These, these are warnings. Did you know what was going on within? How the devil will work and seek to bring you down? Through various means? So think of those three words pointing out the departments of your being. Mortify therefore, put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, mind, heart, will. We're not going into covetousness just at the moment. The consequences of these things well, before I do that, I go back to Romans 6 and a few verses from here. Romans 6, verse 11. And this is more encouraging to us. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remind yourself that in that your state and your condition is that you're forgiven and justified and clean. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it get into mind, heart and will so that you desire it, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as righteous, instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. What an encouragement. 
I remember many years ago hearing a preacher say, when addressing this very theme of sexual impurity, he said, there but for the grace of God go I. What he was trying to get across was the danger and the ease with which Christians can fall. But I have to say that what he was doing was noble. He overstated it. It is not that easy for Christians to fall if you put to death the thought and the desire, if you put to death and you refuse to watch and to take in the things that will interfere with your judgment and with your taste and with your attitude. You look at these words of the Apostle Paul, for sin shall not have dominion over you. It is readily defeatable, suppressible by the help of God. The way the Apostle expresses himself here and elsewhere is very confident. It's failure to act and failure to resist and failure to mortify, which is the problem. Here are the consequences, Psalm 51, of neglect and complacency. You know David's psalm of repentance, verse 4, against thee, he says to God, thee only have I sinned. You've sinned against God first and foremost. You've wrecked yourself and maybe injured others. But the first thing is you've deeply offended God who saved you. To look at the wrong things for a moment against thee, thee only, have I sinned, says David, in connection with sexual sin, and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. You're a saved person. You will not be lost. But God will have to deal with you. He may remove some precious privilege from you. And you will say, He is righteous. And he is just. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. God views our inward parts, our thoughts, and our thought life. And verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. David speaks from deep shame. Hide thy face from my sins. May God give us shame when we go astray. Verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. That's what will happen. 
with no repentance and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So there are consequences. I go back to my text. Any kind of uh, sexual deviation in the Christian and immediately there is hypocrisy. The offender is a hypocrite in thought, whatever it might level it may come at. It's turned you into a hypocrite. There's an old, old saying, goes back ever such a long way, and it's sadly true, that uh, a liar isn't always an adulterer, but an adulterer is always a liar. And this goes for any sexual sin, even in the mind. It turns you into a liar. You've got a secret sin. You've got something concealed. You've got something you must deny. Something you must cover up. Hypocrisy makes a hypocrite of you. Your whole profession is a lie. It's a multiple sin, a compound sin. It never sails alone. Not only are you a hypocrite, you're probably guilty of great arrogance. And you're certainly a thief. Your consecration is gone. You're not consecrated to the Lord. Your mind, the palace of faith, is corrupted now by sin. Your heart, the seat of all your affections and desires, is polluted by sin. Your will is crippled and cracked and caving in to this thing. You have no consecration. You certainly have no communion with God. Whatever you say and whatever you think, it's cut you off from communion with God. He will not reach out to you in that condition. You have no real love for God. It's an empty word now. You've no usefulness to God. You've gone on maybe teaching Sunday school, but he's not using you. He won't, he can't. So it's a solemn message and it's a heavily negative message, but the terms that the apostle uses shows the deep effect in the Christian mind, heart and will of these things. Mortify, put to death, and here's a few helps as we move to conclusion. Abhor that which is evil, says the apostle. That's Romans 12, 9. Abhor that which is evil. Utterly detest it. Reinstruct the mind and the affections. This is horrible. This is vile. God says so. 
Reinstruct yourself. Abhor and hate the evil. That's part of putting to death. Ye that love the Lord, says the psalmist, hate evil in all its forms. Then on another flank, the apostle in Ephesians 5 says to men, love your wives. And to women, love your husbands. For those who are married, if there is ever an evil thought, a sexual thought, there's probably a lack of love for your spouse, affection and appreciation and kindness and esteem and valuing must be. Because if you loved your wife or your husband, these things would be impossible. It's the greatest protection you can imagine. You've lost your love. You've become hard. I remember the case not so very long ago of a man who ran one of these so-called patriarchal groups in the United States. Supposed to be all for the family and all for husbands and wives. And then the very leader of this particular group of churches was found guilty of adultery and multiple cases also. And uh, it was suggested that uh, one of the great problems was this patriarchal idea, too authoritative. He never loved his wife. He was the authority father figure, barked out everything and so on. You've got to have love for husband and love for wife to be protected from wrong thoughts and evil desires. If you have, it's a great protection. Love your wives, husbands. Love God. Love him deeply. Love the fellowship of God's people. And then you'll go with the Apostle Paul. But fornication and all uncleanness, let it not once be named among you. Because you love the fellowship, the house of God, the family of God. You can't see it tainted. tainted. You won't be the one responsible. And then in putting to death the sin, be careful, as I've mentioned, of the television and films culture. Never be casual. Never let things stay on which ought not to stay on. Be intensely spiritually selective. And don't let it undermine you and affect you. Complacent believers just let all the home entertainment watch over them and they fall. And if I can come back to an example, there were a couple of pastors who were very well known with their magazines in the United States for reviewing movies. And they 
would review the famous, the well-known movies. They took the view, well, our readers ought to uh, enjoy culture and be involved in the world and so on. So we'll review them. And the things they reviewed were really over the edge in any number of respects. Both those men had serious personal falls. There you are. They stood for this. Christians should enjoy more of these things. So they took it upon themselves to recommend to us what we could watch. But they fell themselves. They were nothing like careful enough. Be careful, dear friends. It's part of mortifying. But our time is out. And I just come back to the text. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. There are the terms. I've read them out. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness which we'll deal with another time. The old person is dead. Here's a last thought. Christ had to die on Calvary for every one of these sins we may have committed in deed or in thought in our past lives. Christ has to die on Calvary for everyone that we may commit even in our Christian lives. He has to pay the price. He has to suffer for that sin. How much we owe to him, but we cannot do that to him. Dear friends, it's a terrible thing. Sexual sin, I'm sorry for the emphasis this morning, but it's so vital. Sexual sin, this is the way the apostle breaks it down and demonstrates its effect upon us. We must mortify every idea. And as you go on through life, you are strengthened more and more, but you never stop your readiness to put to death every thought, every temptation, and to keep the precautions alive. Now, on the first and the third Sundays of the month, while we cannot actually hold our Lord's Supper services, we pause after our final hymn for a few moments, reflection on the work of Christ on Calvary for us and uh, we shall do that today. Our closing hymn is hymn number 260. Hymn number 260. Give me a sight, O Saviour, of thy wondrous love to me.